you have a Bible, please open to John chapter 12. We're coming to a, a difficult portion of God's Word. One reason I teach consecutively through the Bible is it forces me to deal with all of the Bible. It would be easy as a pastor to say, oh, I don't know about that one, and hopscotch over to the next easier passage. But when you come to a difficult one, you've got to figure out, you know, the Spirit of God put this here for our benefit, and I hope I've learned why and can communicate that to you. And it also gives balance because um, just as you need a balanced diet and not just eating your favorite foods, uh, so we all need the balance of the entirety of God's Word. And so we're going to uh, plow through this one. There should be uh, printed messages around. I think they got kind of a pinkish coral cover on them this week. Feel free to get up and get one at the exit or grab one on the way out. Uh, those are also on the church website, along with the last 22 years of uh, printed and audio sermons. So uh, those are available. I'm going to begin at verse 36 in John 12 and go down through verse 43. Jesus says to the Jewish people, While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes, and he has hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they love the approval of men, literally, they love the glory of men rather than the glory of God. You're probably, you've probably seen a familiar wall plaque that uh, reads, Jesus never fails. And I like that little motto. It's a good reminder of the fact that he is always faithful to us, that he is trustworthy, and so it is always good to remember Jesus never fails, and yet, as you get to this point in the Gospel of John, if you evaluate it honestly, you might ask the question, has Jesus failed in his ministry so far in the Gospel of John? I mean, just looking at it isn't a picture of church success, of church growth, of thousands flocking into the kingdom kind of thing. You have a few faithful followers, but here just a few days before his crucifixion, uh, the twelve aren't exactly a great solid foundation. Uh, Judas is about to betray him. Peter will deny him. Uh, after the resurrection, Thomas will doubt it until he's 
finally firmly convinced uh, all would desert him in his moment of need. And so, again, if you were to honestly say, are these the guys you want to entrust the future of Christianity to, the foundation of the whole church, you would probably objectively say, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, As we see in our text down in verses 42 and 43, there were some of the Jewish leaders who professed to believe in Jesus, but John says they're afraid to take a public stand for Jesus, to confess Him openly for fear of being put out of the synagogue. Uh, The majority of the Jews are intent on uh, killing Jesus, the Jewish leaders, and the Jewish people out of fear of the leaders and fear of being excommunicated, they go along with them. Besides, they really wanted a political Messiah, and Jesus didn't seem to fit the bill on that. So John ends this long section we've been in from John 5 up through John 12. There's this mounting opposition to Jesus that will culminate in John 18 with his arrest and crucifixion. And you have to wonder, well, did Jesus fail in his ministry? And if not, then why didn't many of the Jews accept Jesus as their Messiah? And for that matter, why haven't most people down through history received Christ as Savior and Lord? Now, probably most of you are not losing sleep over the question of why didn't most of the Jews Receive Jesus. That's just not a hot button on our uh, felt need list. And uh, it probably comes partly due to the fact we're used to the fact the church is mostly Gentile. Uh, very few of you are probably from a Jewish home, Jewish background. But you have to put yourself back into the first century and realize every single one of the apostles was Jewish. And as Jews, the apostles uh, were concerned about, well, why haven't the Jews received Jesus as their Messiah? And it really gets to the root question, and that is the credibility of Jesus. Is he truly the Messiah? Now, they had staked their all on that. They knew the Jews were God's chosen people. They knew that God would send his Messiah. They thought Jesus was the one. But then the hard question was, well, why didn't the Jewish people then welcome Jesus and instead they rejected him and even gave him up to crucifixion? And then why are more Gentiles than Jews responding to the gospel? Now, those questions caused the Apostle Paul, in his words, great sorrow and unceasing grief. Those are his words in Romans 9. And he devoted Romans 9, 10, and 11 to deal with that question of why have the Jewish people rejected their Messiah? In his answer in Romans 9, as you probably know, he emphasized God's sovereignty so that he could show that their rejection of Messiah did not thwart or undercut God's sovereign purpose for his people and for the ages. And uh, that's Romans 9. He shows God always accomplishes His will. Then in Romans 10, he emphasizes human responsibility 
both our responsibility to preach the gospel, because you'll remember in Romans 10, he asked the question, well, how can they hear if we don't go and preach? And he emphasizes human responsibility in responding to the gospel, because there's that great verse in Romans 10 that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It puts the responsibility right in our laps to say, will you call on the name of the Lord? If you will, you'll be saved. And so you have that balance between God's sovereignty, human responsibility. And then in Romans 11, Paul concludes that a temporary judicial hardening has happened to the Jews, where God in His sovereign purpose for the ages has hardened the Jews until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and then God will come back and fulfill His promises to Israel. That's Romans 11. Now, our text that we are covering this morning is the Apostle John's contribution to the same problem. He's not as extensive as Paul, who gives three chapters to it. But it's interesting that, like Paul, we will see that John emphasizes God's sovereignty. He emphasizes human responsibility. And he shows us that human sin never derails God's sovereign purpose. But at the same time, he shows people are responsible for their sin and they will be judged uh, if they do not respond to the message of the gospel. So to sum up these verses, John's message is that people do not believe in Jesus because they reject the light that God has given them. And that results in God's judicial blindness blinding them. And then we see, though, that some will see Jesus' glory and believe in Him. So I'm going to divide the text into four parts and just work through it in the order that John wrote it. And first of all, in verses 36 and 37, we see that people do not believe in Jesus because they reject the light that God has given them. Uh, And let me read again verse 36. Jesus says, While you have the light, and He's referring to Himself, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and He went away and hid Himself from them. Jesus, as we've seen, is the light of the world. And he exhorted the Jews here to believe in him while they had the window of opportunity, which was in a few days going shut. Realizing, though, their determination to reject and kill him, Jesus withdraws from them. Now, at first, you might think it's kind of odd that he exhorts them to believe in the light, And then he goes into hiding. But I think it's like a prophetic drama. You remember in the Old Testament, the prophets would often act out their message in some sort of a mini-drama for people so they could visualize it. And we don't know where Jesus went. I'm guessing maybe to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany. But And we don't know how long he withdrew. But I think his departure symbolizes the judicial... Uh, judgment that is about to fall on Israel. And Jesus is saying, if you reject me, 
then I will withdraw, and you will not have the light among you anymore. Also, all through John we have seen that Jesus did not die on the timetable of the Jewish leaders. They did not want him to die during the Passover because they feared a riot among the people. God's intention was that Jesus would die precisely at the Passover because he is the Lamb of God who was given to take away our sins. And so uh, God's timetable was then. And so by withdrawing again, Jesus shows his hour is not quite there. It's almost there. And yet uh, they are not in control. Jesus was in control of his own death. And that's why he withdrew. Then in verse 37, John adds his commentary to this, um, uh, the words and the actions of Jesus. Verse 37, though he had performed so many signs among them, yet they were not believing in him. John, if you'll recall, has presented seven signs or miracles that Jesus did. He calls them signs because Beyond the miracle itself, there is a spiritual significance, a spiritual lesson. Chapter 2, there was the turning of the water into wine. In chapter 4, he healed the uh, nobleman or the, um, the officials, royal official's son. In uh, chapter 5, there was the lame man by the pool of Bethesda that he healed. Chapter 6, he fed the 5,000 with the five loaves and two fish. Chapter 6, he also walked on water, which only the disciples saw. Chapter 9, he opened the eyes of the man born blind. And then as the culminating and arguably the most spectacular miracle he ever performed, in chapter 11, he called Lazarus out of the tomb after his body was beginning to decompose. Um, John chapter 20 and verse 30 says that there were many other signs that Jesus did in the presence of his disciples than the ones that John chose to write in this book, but that these were chosen so that uh, we might believe. And yet, for the most part here, he says, the Jewish people did not believe in spite of these many signs. Now, you have to ask, well, why would the Jewish people reject Jesus after they heard him teach, they saw him, they saw these many, many miracles which authenticated that he is the light come into this dark world. And in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, uh, we saw the answer basically to that question. There John said, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, referring to Jesus, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. Uh, For everyone, John explains, who does evil, hates the light, and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So that is John's explanation of why people reject Jesus. They don't love the light. They hate the light and love their evil deeds. And... uh, The Apostle Paul says a similar thing in that familiar passage in Romans 1 where he shows that God's basic nature and power have been clearly revealed through the creation. But he says that people suppress 
the truth in unrighteousness. So they hold down the truth of God so that they can hold on to their sins. They don't want to face God as creator. First verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God. Right there in your face. And people say, oh, I don't like that. And so they invent all kinds of crazy myths like evolution so that they can dodge the plain truth. God is the almighty creator of heaven and earth. And this did not happen by accident. And so it repeats the, the same truth that I mentioned last time. And that is when people reject Christ, usually their main need is not to get a theological answer to their question. And when you're sharing Christ with an unbeliever, they invariably will raise all these theological questions. If you go there, you're missing their main need, which is to repent. And so, as I've often explained, I'll ask a skeptic, are you telling me that if I can give you a satisfactory answer to that question, you're going to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? And invariably, the skeptic will say, well, I have a lot of other questions too. See, they're just dodging the real issue. They're a sinner. They need to repent of their sin. They need to come to the cross and receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So our verses here, 36 and 37 then, put the emphasis on human responsibility for unbelief. People do not believe because they love their sin. They don't want to come to the light, even though God, through Christ, did mighty miracles in front of them. And so they reject the light. Um, <clears throat> the second point gets kind of scary and difficult. So fasten your seatbelts and stay with me here. But the Bible is clear. If people reject the light that God has given them, then he will judicially blind them even more. This is hard truth, but we need to come to grips with it. It's hard truth. Let's read verses 38 to 40 again. This was to fulfill, and in the Greek text, that is a purpose clause. This was in order to fulfill. Here's the purpose. The word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, and here he cites Isaiah 53, 1, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Then John adds, for this reason they could not believe. And he uses there a word that means they were simply incapable of believing, unable to believe. For, Isaiah said again, and here he quotes very loosely, but he is obviously referring to Isaiah 6.10. He, God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. By citing these two verses, Isaiah 53.1 and Isaiah 6.10, John is making two very startling claims. First of all, he is showing that the Jews' rejection of Jesus was in order to fulfill prophecy. And second, he is showing that the Jews were incapable of believing because God had blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. 
Now, there is a third startling claim here for liberals. Uh, Some of you may be aware that liberal scholars argue that Isaiah did not write all of Isaiah. There's first Isaiah and second Isaiah, and some even add a third Isaiah. The interesting thing here is John quotes from so-called second Isaiah, and then he quotes from first Isaiah, and he says Isaiah (laughs) for both of them. And so he believed that the Spirit of God inspired Isaiah to write Isaiah. And uh, like most of the liberal claims, it's just a bunch of baloney. So uh, that is the third claim. But let's go back to the first two claims here. First, that the Jews' rejection of Jesus was in order to fulfill prophecy. And second, his claim that the Jews were incapable of believing because God had blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Uh, Dr. D.A. Carson, who teaches at Trinity Seminary, a respected evangelical scholar, he calls those claims, what he says, unambiguous predestinarianism. And uh, he says that John is saying that the Jews' unbelief, and this is his quote, was not only foreseen in Scripture, but on that very account, necessitated by Scripture. And furthermore, the cause of their final unbelieving rejection of Jesus was God had judicially blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, so that they were incapable of believing. They could not believe. And so the idea is, because the Jews would not believe, in verse 37, the Jews could not believe, in verses Uh, 38, 39, and 40. It's interesting, by the way, Jesus cited the same text, Isaiah 6, 10, 9 and 10, uh, in Matthew 13, when the disciples came to him and said, Lord, why do you say everything in parables? And he cited this verse. And the Apostle Paul cited the same verse in Acts 28, when the unbelieving Jews were walking away from him as he was a prisoner in Rome, He cited this verse as justification for why now he was turning to the Gentiles. Let's look at the first quote, Isaiah 53, 1. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That quote occurs in the context of Isaiah's presenting the suffering servant, um, who, like a lamb, would be led to the slaughter to bear the sins of his people. The arm of the Lord, in the quote, refers to God's mighty power. Now, you would think that everyone who saw a stupendous miracle would fall on their face in repentance and believe, wouldn't you? Sometimes skeptics will say that. Just show me a miracle and I'll believe. They wouldn't. They would not believe if they saw a miracle. For this reason, John says the arm, and Isaiah says, the arm of the Lord must be revealed. See, to be revealed means God opens your eyes to see it. And in this case, the arm of the Lord refers to these miracles that John has just referred to in verse 37 that Jesus did. And you'll recall in John 11, there were Jews there who could smell Lazarus rotting in the tomb. They heard Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth. They saw him come forth. And you know what they did? 
they went straightway to the Jewish authorities and said, uh, you need to kill Jesus. Incredible. But it shows us the blindness of sinners unless God reveals his truth to them. It, it, it's just amazing. They will explain away miracles by natural means. There are liberal seminary professors who explain Jesus walking on the water, that there was really a sandbar there, and the disciples just kind of thought he was walking on water. And the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was that Jesus kind of persuaded everybody to share their lunch. And so it was a miracle of love that everyone shared their lunch and everyone had plenty. That is taught in seminary in America. I heard Al Mohler, who's president of a Southern Seminary, say he was taught that at a Southern Baptist seminary when he was a student. He took over that seminary at age 33 and cleaned house. He started firing all the liberals, and uh, he has transformed that seminary back to the Word of God. But uh, Paul talks about it in Ephesians 4.18. We saw this verse last week. Describing unbelievers, he says, They are darkened in their understanding. They are excluded from the life of God. Here's the reason, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Very same thing happened, by the way, when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. You would think that seeing the mighty miracles that took place in that uh, window of time in history would have made believers out of all Israel. I mean, they saw the plagues in Egypt... Egypt is struck down, Israel is spared ten times. They saw the Red Sea open, they walked through on dry land, the Red Sea closed on Pharaoh's army. They get into the wilderness, they have no water, and God, through Moses, brings water from the rock. They have no food, God brings manna every morning for over 40 years. Uh, It's hot in that desert, God provides a cloud during the day. It's pitch dark in that desert. God gives the pillar of fire by night. On and on and on, they saw these stupendous miracles. And yet, read what Moses says in Deuteronomy 29, 2 through 4. You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, Those great signs and wonders, yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. So you notice in verse 2 it says, you've seen, but down in verse 4 he says, you've not seen. You know, it's like Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. you got ears, but they aren't hearing. Because God has to open blind eyes. And God is to open deaf ears. And God is to soften hard hearts. Or His message falls on sinners. And they reject it. They reject it. So the point is, the arm of the Lord isn't enough. The arm of the Lord must be revealed. And when it's revealed, people go, wow. Wow. Look at the evidence. But before that, they blow it off. They just shrug it off because the human heart 
born in sin, is alienated from God and incapable of responding apart from God's work. Now, in John 12, the idea here is that in spite of these many miracles that Jesus performed, people would not believe in Jesus because he didn't fit their expectation of being a political uh, conquering Messiah if you go on reading in Isaiah 53, after 53, 1 there, verses 2 and 3 say, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look on him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He didn't look like a movie star riding in on his white charger, ready to take over and lead, lead the victory over Rome. Uh, Isaiah goes on, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted by grief. And so Jesus didn't fit the Jewish expectation of Messiah. Boy, he's going to be this mighty military conqueror. Instead, he comes riding into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so they rejected him, even though he did so many signs in front of them. Now, here's an application for those of us who have believed. I would predict that if you are a new Christian, before very long, Jesus will not meet your expectations. In other words, when you come to faith, you think, Jesus is going to solve all my problems. And your problems get worse. And you think, He's going to save all my family and work out all these horrible family conflicts that I grew up with. And instead, your family members dig in their heels and they get meaner and nastier toward you and you barely can even talk to them. They're so angry because your conversion convicts them of their sin and they hate the light because their deeds are evil and they love those evil deeds. And so there's greater conflict. And the point is, if you aren't careful, you can get very disappointed with Jesus and turn away from him in temptation because you think, it's not like I thought it would be. So, just a word of warning. Jesus will not meet all your expectations. Those are wrong expectations, by the way. He will meet your right expectations and do even far greater than you can ask or think. Ephesians 3. But he's not the kind of Messiah you might have thought he should have been. Dr. Carson, who I quoted earlier, uh, acknowledges that a superficial reading of verses 38 to 40 here, he says, may find it harsh, manipulative, and even robotic. Maybe you thought that as we read those verses. And he offers four things to keep in mind, and I'm kind of taking off on those four and, and uh, paraphrasing them here and uh, supplementing a bit, but I thought they were helpful to share with you. First of all, he says God's sovereignty in these matters is never pitted against human responsibility. You need to be careful to maintain that balance. I have seen Christians who go whole hog on God's sovereignty and they effectively deny human responsibility and that is out of balance. On the other hand, I've seen people who deny God's sovereignty and in effect make man sovereign, man's free will is king, and that's out of balance. The Bible holds both in tension. 
And our brains cannot do that logically. But let me just cite one verse of many that I could have cited. Acts 4, 27 and 28. The early church is praying here because they're under persecution. And they say, For truly, in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, notice, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. You see the balance? These evil people killed Jesus, but you predestined it, and so they were only fulfilling your will, and yet they are guilty of their sin, and they will stand before God in judgment. Both are true. And in our brain, we can't figure that out, but you have to hold that tension. God predestined the cross. I hope you hold that. Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. God predestined that. Evil people did it, and they, not God, were responsible for doing it. Okay? Again, hang on to the tension. Don't go off either side or you'll, you'll be out of balance. The second point that Dr. Carson makes is that God's judicial hardening is not the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary sovereign toward morally neutral or good people, but rather it is His holy condemnation of guilty people who are condemned to the judgment that they themselves have chosen. You follow what he's saying? You cannot blame God and say, oh, He just arbitrarily said, okay, these people will do this evil deed and I'm going to judge them. And, you know, no, they chose that. And uh, I listed in the notes, if we had another 20 minutes, I could take you to these verses, just a few of the verses that show it. Let me, let me just refer to one offhanded. I always chuckle when I read it. Ahab was the most, one of the most wicked kings in the history of Israel, and God wanted him dead. And I've often wondered, why didn't God just give him a heart attack? You know, God can do that. Food poisoning. I mean, you know, there's a million ways God could have just said, Ahab, you're done, man. And he could have died. Well, instead, the scene is, before God in heaven, God asks all the demons, Hey, I'd like to kill Ahab. Any ideas? <laughs> it's a strange thing. And, uh, you know, some say this, some say that. And one of the demons pipes up and says, I know, I'll go and be a deceiving influence in the mouths of his prophets. And God says, I like that one. Go do it. And so they go and deceive all of Ahab's prophets to say, go into battle and you'll succeed. And he listens to them and he goes into battle. And uh, again, in humor and irony, it says, an arrow at random struck him in the joint of his armor and he, he died. Interesting interplay between the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of people, and a so-called happenstance arrow that finds its mark with Ahab. Many, many other examples. Uh, you can look them up, the ones I put in the notes, and uh, just marvel at the ways of God. Dr. Carson's third point is this. God's sovereignty in these matters is actually a cause for hope. Have you ever thought about that? 
If God is not sovereign over evil, then we're in a dualistic world. And we don't have any hope that God's going to win. But the fact that God is sovereign even over evil people and evil spirits and all of that uh, means we can pray to a sovereign God and know that His sovereign purpose will prevail and that no evil can overcome our God. So it's a cause for hope. Uh, Psalm 97.1, The Lord reigns, let the people rejoice. And if the Lord reigns, we have cause to rejoice. He's reigning over ISIS in the Middle East. He's reigning over Boko Haram in Nigeria. He's reigning over the Ebola plague. And we can rejoice that he's in charge. And here's the, the fourth point. God's sovereign hardening of the people in Isaiah's day so that Isaiah was commissioned to an apparently fruitless ministry was a stage in God's strange work. And there Dr. Carson is basing that on Isaiah 28, 21, and 22. But it was a stage in God's strange work that brought his ultimate redemptive purposes to pass. And and Dr. Carson points out that Paul argues somewhat similarly in Romans 9, 22 to 33. But the application is this, that the unbelief, the evil de- deeds of wicked people never frustrate God's sovereign purposes, and they actually fulfill God's purposes, and so we can trust Him even when evil people do evil things to us. You know, I'll confess right off, I do not understand most of the book of Revelation when it comes to the details, but there's one point in the book of Revelation that is crystal clear, and that is the worldwide evil and deception of the Antichrist are ordained by God to fulfill God's sovereign purpose in the end times. And when God is done with him, he judges him and casts him into the lake of fire forever and ever. It's a mystery. But the Antichrist will only do, as the people in Acts 4 prayed, whatever God's hand and God's purpose predestined to occur. The book of Revelation is not just God looking at the future and going, oh, that's what's going to happen, huh? It is God revealing how he has ordained the future. And Antichrist is part of that. And when God is done with him, God casts him into the lake of fire. And so to the persecuted church in Revelation 2.10, God says this, and this applies to the persecuted church, whether in Iraq, Africa, Uh, wherever today the church is persecuted. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. That's sort of a number of completion. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So, we've seen so far then that people do not believe in Jesus because they reject the light that God has given them. They reject that light. That results in God judicially blinding them even more than their rejection. 
Now, in the next three verses, we see, however, that some get a vision of God's glory and believe in Him. And then there are others we're going to look at who profess to believe, but their focus is not on Jesus' glory. First of all, in verse 41, some people believe in Christ because God has granted them some vision of His glory. These things Isaiah said, verse 41, because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. That is a simply remarkable statement. John says Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus and he believed in him. He spoke of him. I think he's referring both texts. Isaiah 53, Isaiah got a glimpse of the glory of the suffering servant who would offer himself as a lamb slain. Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up on his throne, he's referring to Jesus. He saw his glory then. And so John is saying that Isaiah saw what the Jews of Jesus' day missed, namely that Jesus would be glorified by suffering for our sins on the cross, that Jesus is the exalted one who would be raised and seated at the right hand of the Father in glory forever and ever. And uh, the remarkable thing is, John identifies Jesus with the Lord, Yahweh, on His throne. Now, in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 and 6, Paul says some things that are very parallel here. He says, first of all, that the God of this world, that's a reference to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light, notice how he phrases it, of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So people don't see the glory of Christ because Satan has blinded them. Then in verse 6, Paul adds, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness. He's referring to the creation, Genesis 1, when God said, Let there be light, and there was light. That God is the one who has shown in our hearts, notice, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ, of God in the face of Christ. So Paul is saying unbelievers have been blinded by Satan so they can't see the glory of Christ. But when we believe, it's because God has shown into our hearts and He's revealing His glory in Christ. And so tying in with John, Isaiah then was granted a vision of the glory of Jesus. And John, remember, in John 1 said, We beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John writes his gospel so that you and I, through what Jesus taught, through what Jesus did, would get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ lifted up on the cross. And our vision of the glory of of Christ is not going to compare to Isaiah's spectacular vision of God and the angels and the seraphim saying, holy, holy, holy. And our vision of the glory of Christ isn't going to compare to John's vision in Revelation 1 when he saw Jesus there with, you know, all of his glory and he falls before him as a a dead man. 
And our vision of Christ in His glory isn't going to compare to when Paul was caught up to the third heaven and saw things which he's not even permitted to speak. But I am saying this. If you are saved, God has opened your eyes to some extent to see the glory of Christ crucified. To say, you know, Christ crucified reveals the glory of God to me. And of course, we grow in that over our entire Christian life. But I just want to ask you this morning, have, have you had that vision, that revelation of the glory of God in Christ crucified? And if so, are you growing to see it more and more? That's one of my aims through teaching through the Gospel of John is that I and you would get a greater vision of who Jesus is in his glory. And of course, that increases our worship, our obedience. Everything relates to who he is. Now, there's one sticky matter I have to deal with before we close, and that's in verses 42 and 43, where John says that some profess to believe in Jesus, but their focus, he says, is on the glory of men or man, not on the glory of God. Let me read those verses again. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved, and as I mentioned, the word glory is the Greek text, they loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God. Now, here's the sticky issue. Is John describing true believers or false believers here? And there are some commentators who say, well, it says that they believed. So they were believers. They were just weak in their faith. And they bring up men like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who in chapter 19, John says, they were secret believers for fear of the Jews. And so they would say, well, they're saved. They just have defective faith. I'm going to argue differently. I'm going to argue that John is here describing those who are not yet saved. Now, maybe, hopefully, after the resurrection, they came to full faith in Jesus and took a stand with him. But I'm letting John interpret John here, basically, because you'll remember back in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, John described those who believed in Jesus but it says, but Jesus, for his part, was not entrusting himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew their faith was not genuine, and that set the stage for his interview with Nicodemus, who believed, but he didn't really believe. Okay? We also saw the same thing in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 59, where in verse 31, it said, many of the Jews believed in him. You get to verse 59, and those same Jews pick up stones to stone him. So they believed in what they wanted to believe. But when Jesus declared to him who he was and said, before Abraham was, I am, that was it. They couldn't go there and they didn't really believe. I'm arguing same thing here. There's one other verse that interprets our text here. In John 5:44, Jesus was talking with the Pharisees And he rhetorically asked his opponents, 
How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? And as I said in our text, those are the exact same words. They love the glory of men rather than the glory of God. And so it relates to, by the way, to verse 23 of John 12, where Jesus says the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified on the cross. And in verse 28, where the Father says, I have glorified my name and I'll glorify it again. And then in verse 41 that we just saw where Isaiah saw his glory. But these men, they were out for the glory of men, not for the glory of God. And so I'm going to argue They weren't really truly believing at this point. There's one other verse that cinches my case, and uh, that is in Matthew or Mark chapter eight, verse thirty-eight. It's also in Matthew uh, sixteen, I believe. Mark's uh, Jesus says this, Mark eight thirty-eight: For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes. Notice in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's glory again. And so these Pharisees wouldn't confess Jesus because of their fear of being put out of the synagogue, their love for the glory of man over the glory of God. And I'm going to argue, unless later they were willing to take a stand and say, we believe in Christ and him crucified, I don't think they were genuine believers. Now you might ask, Well, why would John put verses 42 and 43 in the text? I had to scratch my head on that. Why why are these verses there? Why not just leave them out? I think for this reason. I think he's warning people who say, I believe, but I kind of keep it secret to say, you better check out whether you really believe or not. Because if you believe in Jesus, you have to be willing to confess Christ even if it costs you at work, at school, with your friends, with your family, you have to take a stand with Jesus. Graciously, I hope. Certainly not. Don't let your obnoxiousness be the source of offense. But if in a gracious and kind way you say, you know, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that He died for my sins, and that that's the only way to heaven. And if people get ticked off with that, well, they get ticked off. But you know what? Man's approval might last a few years, but God's approval is going to last for eternity. And one of the reasons I shoot straight when I preach, and people sometimes don't like that, is in a very few short years, I'm going to be done doing this and I'm going to be standing before the Lord Jesus and I assume he'll talk to me in English because that's all the only language I know or else he'll give me an ability to understand Hebrew but uh, in English there's a big difference in how your lips form when you say W and when you say D and I'm looking for W well done good and faithful servant And I don't want to hear, D, depart from me. I never knew you. See? So everything I do, I just, I want to say, oh, Lord, please, 
I want to hear, well done. And that's the approval that counts. Now, let me wrap it up here. I'm kind of running over this morning, but just four quick applications, okay? They're in your notes. First of all, are you obeying the light God has given you? Or is there a chance you're suppressing the truth because of your love of your sins? And that's a danger both for people who have trusted Christ as well as maybe if you're here and you've never trusted Christ. We all need to begin to hate our sins and love Jesus in his light. And I'm just encouraging you, when you get to hard parts of Scripture, don't do an end run. Just go before the Lord and say, oh, God, this is hard. Help me to obey. Second, are, are you really trusting the Lord even when things don't fit your expectations? As I said, you're going to be disappointed with how God does certain things. Just this morning in my quiet time was reading Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? How long? He repeats that four times. How long? And I thought, wow, David had the same kind of frustrations I have sometimes. Lord, things aren't going the way I would like them to go. But you have to trust him. Third, when you share Christ, just pray God will open blind eyes. Because you're not depending on your great arguments to win them to Christ. You're depending on God saving them. And it's a God thing. See, it's not a salesmanship thing. God has to open blind eyes. He has to soften hard hearts. He has to reveal his arm. And then finally, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ to save you from your sins, let me warn you, you won't be able to blame God on Judgment Day. You are responsible before God to believe in Jesus. And I say it kindly, but if you go to hell, it's because you choose to go to hell. Sober things to think about. But the responsibility is ours to believe, to repent. And when we do it, we just have to say, thank God, He worked that in me. Well, Lord, these are hard truths. And uh, as much as I labor to make them clear and to understand them myself, your spirit has to reveal them. So I ask that you would do that among us, that we all would be submissive to your word. And especially, I pray, if any here have never seen the glory of Jesus at the cross, that you would open their eyes to see Jesus lifted up for sinners, that they would trust in him that they would know He's coming back soon in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. And we long for that day and say, even so come, Lord Jesus. Amen.